His heart jiggled left and right with a tinge of pain. He loved this lost girl, his neighbor for most of her life, abandoned by her parents, then adopted by him and Diane, simply because they all liked each other and thought they might as well become a family since her own parents were utterly indifferent. In a little less than twenty-four hours, he had hit LaGuardia, then a small hotel with no name on it that Diane loved on Irving Place, a couple of blocks from Gramercy Park. He restrained himself from asking if the hotel had a bar, because he was crying out of fear for Mona, and the bar was only another inept compulsion of his. In the landing pattern, his seatmate pointed at the gap of the missing towers, as if by knowing he was part of history. A writer, drunk sportsman over in Grand Marais in the UP, believed a giant aviary should be built in their location in memoriam, but the real estate turned out to be far too valuable, whatever that meant. Memory has no enduring value. Never having been in New York City, Sunderson felt profoundly out of context, as they say, at the hotel desk, where a fay and elegant young man seemed to wince at his dowdy and rumpled clothing. Business or pleasure? the young man asked with a smile. Neither, Sunderson said. My daughter's been kidnapped and I'm looking for her. That put a stop to everything, except the figurine of a toy poodle and a diamond necklace on the desk seemed to yap. Sunderson's room was named after Edith Wharton, whom he slightly remembered from American literature in high school. The rooms were expensive by his motel standards, but then Diane had wanted him to be comfortable, and there was an indication of her having spent time in this room. He was too hungry for his habitual nap, which put him in a small dither. The cab had been trapped at a bridge, and he sat there craving a cigarette. They were stopped so long he stepped out on the bridge, had a quick puff, and got vertigo from the height— The cab nudged forward a few feet, and he tossed away the barely-started cigarette and jumped back in, feeling foolish when they stayed stationary. With cigarettes, up to eight bucks a pack, it was such a waste. He went down the stairs to the Spanish restaurant next door called Casamono, which featured small and medium plates. He liked whenever possible to order what he had never eaten with an air of authority. He ordered a bottle of fine priorat, red wine, some cuttlefish, razor clams, a soft-shell crab, a piquillo pepper stuffed with meat and roasted. He ordered a second bottle of wine, first calling Diane on his cell because he didn't want booze to be obvious in his voice. She told him to check the messages on his cell, which he never did, because Emma had called with the name of the bar on the Lower East Side where the band regularly hung out. Sunderson was so pleased to be eating such delicious food and drinking this superb wine that he had been devouring it. The lunch crowd was thinning, and he noted how sallow everyone looked before their summer vacation. Once in his senior year of high school, he and a friend had proven their bravery by taking off on a lark and driving the friend's 49 Ford on the long trip down through Wisconsin to Chicago, where people also looked sallow. The outside, in his terms, had totally been taken over since then by what he thought of as the inside. After a two-hour nap, he awoke feeling a crunch as though none of his body parts knew how to work together. He drank a two-ounce vodka shooter from a tiny bottle in his briefcase, kept for such emergencies, a kind of motor oil, as it were. He had three cups of expensive coffee on his post-nap stroll, thinking it was cheaper to have a Saturday night drunk in the Upper Peninsula than to try to wake up in New York City. At the third coffee shop, he talked to Emma, who added another bar as a band hangout, more specifically a favorite of the drummer, who Emma had learned was Mona's post-concert inamorato. This second bar was in the Carlisle Hotel, where the drummer's mother lived upstairs. 
In the third coffee shop, the young woman next to Sunderson was a tad homely but friendly. She was working on her laptop, and she was kind enough to look up photos of the band, which was called Arugula, of all things. She said that they were scumbags, or so she had heard, and that the two bars he had to check out were practically at opposite ends of Manhattan. The first bar was called Toad in the Hole, and Sunderson reflected on entering that it smelled like a very dead toad in a very shallow hole. The bartender's face was gray and flaccid, and an immensely muscled man was sitting in the middle of the bar monopolizing the area, so Sunderson took a stool closer to the door, generally a good idea for safety's sake. I'll have a double beam with water on the side. I heard the band Arugula hangs out here. I don't talk to cops, the bartender said, pouring light. I retired two years ago. When am I forgiven? You guys are like Marines. You never get over it. I'm their spokesman. What do you want? The other patron swiveled toward him on his stool, and Sunderson noted that his huge upper body...